There's like we have our own theme song, uh-huh. so it's like dun 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 like so that I kind didn't of get thing. to hear that. No, no, no. You can listen to it I later. Can listen though. to it later, or I can just okay. sing it. Well, that was be- <laughs> that was beautiful. Thanks. Hi, and welcome back to Bloomberg Benchmark, a show about the global economy. It is Thursday, May 26th. I'm Tori Stowell, an economics reporter with Bloomberg News. And I am holding it down solo today, but there are two special guests with me in the studio here in D.C. to help me talk about our topic for the day, which is all about the Supreme Court. With Donald Trump, now the Republican Party's presumptive nominee for the presidency, the debate about the vacancy on the Supreme Court is ramping back up. As you may know, there's been an opening for the ninth seat on the highest court in the land ever since Associate Justice Antonin Scalia died in February. And in a nutshell, Democrats would like to fill it with Merrick Garland, picked by President Barack Obama, while Republicans believe whoever wins this year's election should get to fill the vacancy. One of the less looked at aspects of the debate, though, is how this vacancy could affect the U.S. economy's business sector. It's sort of a weird time for the economy right now, if you hadn't noticed. We're in the middle of an election season, so business leaders are are already wondering what sorts of new regulations might come down the pike. The Federal Reserve is deciding whether to raise interest rates again in June for the second time. And to top it all off, having a vacancy on the Supreme Court generates its own amount of uncertainty when businesses aren't quite sure how the court will lean on different issues. So before we get too far into this, I'm going to introduce our guests. First off, we've got Senator Al Franken, the junior Democratic senator from Minnesota. He is a member of the Senate Judiciary Committee and presided over the confirmation votes of Supreme Court Justices Sonia Sotomayor and Elena Kagan. And you may also remember him from his days on Saturday Night Live in the 70s and 80s. Welcome, Senator. Thank you. you by, well, when I presided over those, I was in the chair presiding. It was actually a coincidence that I ended up being in the chair when both Justice Sotomayor and Justice Kagan were confirmed. It was it was neat. It was neat, <laughs> you know, and I had just kind of gotten there right. with uh, Sotomayor. And we've also got Greg Storr here with us, who is Bloomberg's rock star Supreme Court reporter. He has been with us since 1996, shortly after he graduated from Harvard Law. Welcome, Greg. Thanks, Tori. Good to be here. And I just want to say that I, I asked to have the Supreme Court beat. It wasn't just given to me because it was the only thing available. <laughs> well, you graduated from Harvard Law School, so you were kind of like a lawyer kind of guy. I, I was kind of a lawyer, that's right. Okay. And you're a rock star, uh, evidently. I, he I, is. I think that's, metaphor- so I think cover- that's metaphorical. I actually okay. have, have no music. Well, let's jump in to sort of what's going on with the Supreme Court these days and how we got here. I feel like, Greg, you're pretty well equipped to walk us through the path here. Well, Justice Scalia was was really a kind of a conservative icon. He was really the, the kind of the anchor of the court's conservative wing believed in interpreting the Constitution in accordance with with the original meaning of its words, interpreted statutes very strictly, and uh, when we're talking about business cases, uh, very often uh, ended up on the conservative side. Say he was pro-corporate, would you? 
Uh, he he was he was uh, very often on business side, but so many Supreme Court cases don't divide along those lines. They are not the ideological cases that that we get in with you know abortion affirmative action. You know, a lot of times there'll be seven to two decisions or nine nine to nothing decisions. But it's it's fair to say he more often than not was on the business side when it was say a business versus consumer dispute. Sure. What's interesting is I hear sometimes. And I've heard this in the Judiciary Committee uh, when we've been discussing their unwillingness to have hearings for for Garland. Uh, But I've heard um, Scalia being, by Republicans, described as not an activist judge. And I found him very activist. Where did you find him activist? What what areas are you thinking about? Well, uh, for example, overturning the Voting Rights Act. Uh, This was something that, I mean... My understanding of activist is a justice who will overturn, uh, for example, a law that passed the Senate unanimously. As the Voting Rights Act did. Yes, the exactly. That's the point. Right. Yep. In other words, I, you hear very often from Republicans, well, um, I, <laughs> you know, I don't want an act. I don't want I want the le- you know, legislative bodies to make the laws, not the court. And so I want, I don't want to, you know, I want, I don't want an activist judge. I want a judge like Justice Scalia, who had such contempt for the Senate. He said that the Congress had passed the Voting Rights Act because of its name. You remember him saying that? Because, I'm sorry, because of it, oh, because of its name? Yes, because, uh, yes, in the arguments he did. Well, to me, that, that was an incredibly telling remark that he has such little regard for Congress that Congress had virtually unanimously, and it was unanimously in the Senate, or at least with no dissent, uh, had voted for the Voting Rights Act that, that he voted to overturn. But he said that, well, you know, with a name like the Voting Rights Act, they had to vote for it. They felt, you know, because they're stupid. I mean, it was, it was so much contempt for Congress that, to me, I don't understand when some of my Republican colleagues... Uh, say that he was the opposite of an activist judge. To me, he was a very activist judge, and this has been an activist court, as far as I'm concerned. Well, I want to reel it in for just a second so we can get to Merrick Garland, who I think is um, very interesting, and would love to hear your thoughts on him as well. So Obama has nominated him to fill Scalia's vacancy, and it's unclear what's going to happen there. We're hearing a lot of different scenarios play out, and you've met with him, right? I have, yes. What were your impressions? He pretty much was what I had been told he was. He seemed like very uh, smart, very um, a good guy. Just like, you know, when the administration called me before his appointment or before his nomination uh, saying, you know, who do you want to see? Or I I said, I I don't have a person, but I'd like someone who after uh, hearings that the the American people would – say, I want nine of those. And what I asked him about, he's been, he has a reputation. He, he's chief judge of the um, D.C. Circuit, and which is essentially the second court in the, mm-hmm. in the nation. And he has a, a reputation as being a consensus judge. And what I asked him about is, how do you do that? How do you arrive at consensus? Uh, his approach was very sensible and very smart, and he just seems like a pretty brilliant, by all... Um, all accounts, he's a, a you know, he, he, Roberts 
said when you disagree with him, you're in you're in a bad you're not in a good position. So uh, bipartisan appeal here. Yeah, Orrin Hatch and all, all kinds De- of debatable, I guess. Well, Orrin or, or Hatch had nice things to say about him earlier. He, when there was an, another vacancy a number of years ago, Orrin Hatch uh, suggested Merrick Garland as somebody who could get bipartisan support. What I understand is he said something recently about him before uh, Obama made his pick, and he said that if he picked someone like Garland, that would that would be good. Uh, but he's expecting the president to pick some you know, a liberal, progressive, lefty or something. And then I think he had to eat his words. So Garland certainly has a reputation as a consensus builder. And, Senator, I'm I'm interested to know, is that the kind of justice you think we need on the Supreme Court now? And I'm sort of wondering as this plays out, um, the Republicans, of course, have, have said they don't want to hold a hearing, don't want to uh, bring up a vote, and they want to let the next president decide. Well, not necessarily. They've also said that uh, if the Democrat wins – a number of them have said they would consider him in the lame duck. So on the one hand, and I, I you know, we have um, executive sessions in the Judiciary Committee, and during these sessions, uh, we've had a couple of sessions that were pretty much devoted to discussing this. And I, I would sit there through the whole session and listen to people, and I'd have my Republican colleagues come in and out, and a Republican would sit down and say, you know, the people have to decide, and so it should be the next uh, next president should decide. And then someone else would come in and go like, "Well, if the Democrat wins, I think we could take. I, we like Garland, and we should take him up in the lame duck." And and I spoke and I said, "Well, my question is, do you guys talk to each other? Because <laughs> this was they, and evidently they don't, because it was a, a completely." contradictory stance they were taking. One, this is a matter of principle. Let the people decide. Now, I think the people did decide when they voted for to, to reelect President Obama in 2012. The, the Constitution is pretty clear that the term is for four years. Uh, in February, when that's when Scalia uh, died. Uh, uh, Justice Scalia unfortunately died, scientists told us there were 11 months left in the president's term, you see. And then and the Constitution is very clear that the president makes, you know, will, will nominate when there is a vacancy, and there was a vacancy. And uh, then they uh, kept citing the Biden rule or something, and the Biden rule, they took a speech that Biden had given com- and took it completely out of context. He had said that if... Uh, Bush, this was in, I think, October? I, I believe it was in June of an election year. Okay, but with, maybe but without, June. But without, no, a, without a vacancy at the time. But what I'm interested to know from you is, yeah. um, you know, if Hillary Clinton wins in November, as I know you, you hope she will, should she be free to nominate somebody other than Merrick Garland? Would you rather see somebody? He, I mean, he's described as a moderate. He may well become the new kind of center justice on the court if he's confirmed. Would you rather see somebody um, who is more like, just to throw out a name you've, you've mentioned, Pam Carlin, uh, somebody who is more of a kind of a, a more liberal, perhaps more ideological, or at least uh, more interested in, in kind of uh, sweeping constitutional changes? Well, I, I think that begs the question whether uh, Republicans will take up the Garland uh, nomination if, if, say, Hillary wins. And a number of them had said they would. And I think that 
Uh, some of them are making the argument that, I mean, it would be Hillary's right to. Mm-hmm. She'd be the president. Would you want to see her do that? Would you want to see her u- use this nomination to uh, make more of a change on the Supreme Court? Well, I, I must say I really was impressed with Garland. So I wouldn't be uh, terribly upset if she uh, nominated him. I think he was a perfect nominee for this moment uh, because he is a consensus builder. And I think he was actually following the Biden rule. If you listen to the Biden speech where he said, if you just you, you know, if someone resigns, if someone games, he was really basically talking about a justice gaming this and resigning so that Bush could then nominate someone who, you know, was, was very right wing. Well, then he said, don't do that. We won't take that person up. But if you come to us and if that situation happens and you we come up with some kind of consensus figure, then, of course, we'll take them up. It seems to me that there's a lot of deliberate – it's not obfuscation. It's, it's kind of um, misrepresentation of terms and of, of um, certainly of what the vice president said then and again what kind of justice uh, Scalia uh, Scalia was so since there is so much deadlock on this issue it seems like very likely we won't have a ninth justice before November uh, maybe even- I think that part of this was the uh, you know remember Jerry Moran uh, at a town meeting in Kansas said he thought we should take up Judge Garland, and then uh, some moneyed interests on the right uh, threatened him and said that if he continued with that stance, they would dump about $10 million to primary him. And so he reversed his position. And uh, so maybe after the primary season is all over, there, there won't be that kind of pressure Perhaps. these Republicans. But I think that it, it is very likely, yes, that we will not see them take up Garland. I think they'll pay a price for it. Well, given and that. I, I, think, I think the uh, Republican candidates who are incumbents, who are in states like New Hampshire and, and in Ohio, uh, may very well pay a, a price for that in Pennsylvania. Well, let's talk about then how the court is operating now that there's the vacancy and it may not be filled for quite some time. Um, Greg, it's more likely that we'll have four four splits. Um, and we've had we've, we've had, had, yeah. had two so, we've had two, two so already far. and a couple punts. And a, yes, <laughs> and a <laughs> including, pun, <laughs> including a, a significant pun on the uh, Obamacare and and the requirement to have contraceptive coverage. Yeah, and um, they've also got rulings on deck, or they're scheduled to make rulings on cases concerning affirmative action, immigration, Puerto Rico's debt, mm-hmm. and all these issues touch our economy in one way or another, whether it's, you know, education, which begets mm-hmm. income, et cetera, um, whether it's immigration and the size of our labor force or effects on wages um, or Puerto Rico's debt, which we just had an episode mm-hmm. about a few weeks ago on the podcast. What happens then? How do how do business leaders know how to navigate this sort of situation where they're not really sure what's going to happen, what the what the ruling is going to be, or any any precedents that might come down? I mean, how do, 
How does that play out? Well, you, of course, you could say the same thing about the political situation right now. Uh, and so much of this uh, is tied to who the next president is, who ultimately nominates the, the next justice. And there are also some significant business issues where you could see the court being that has been divided four to four, or excuse me, five to four with Justice Scalia and, and the next justice will make a big difference. So we can talk about things like class action lawsuits where uh, there was a five justice majority with Scalia on the court to limit class action lawsuits. And we can talk about arbitration, arbitration, mandatory yeah, arbitration. That's something clauses. I care a lot about. Yeah, where, where the, 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 again, the five justice majority has said we will enforce arbitration clauses between, you know, your cell phone company and, and consumer or, uh, you know, probably em- between employers and, yeah, and, em- yeah. and employees. And no. those are areas where I think that, that I, I think it sounds like the senator agrees that. It could be a big difference uh, depending on who. We've had a whole bunch of 5-4 decisions by uh, this court. And uh, usually, um, you know, when you make big decisions, that over, especially ones that overturn precedent, then you usually want consensus. Mm-hmm. And so this has been, I think, an unusual court and, and, and an activist court uh, in that they've overturned a lot of precedent with 5-4 margins, and they've done it in pretty hinky ways. As the Citizens United, they decided on a question they weren't, wasn't asked in the case, mm-hmm. and, uh, and they did it by a 5-4 margin. Now that it's 4-4, we're seeing a lot of uncertainty, and you've seen a lot of business saying, we don't like this. We'd like to see, you know, uh, seen a lot of uh, letter, you know, a letter from 200 and some corporate Say business lawyers. Saying, I saw that. I saw a similar letter. Yeah, writing and saying we don't we don't like the vacancy. It, our clients are asking us about this internationally. It may damage the way people perceive the U.S. and its ability to make decisions. But that is, I mean, I think it's probably the same letter. Yeah, had like two hundred thirty-seven lawyers. That's that number sticks in my head for some reason, but. Um, Probably not right. <laughs> but anyway, I think it's probably the same letter. Uh-huh. And you're seeing some um, uncertainty, obviously, when the circuits are divided. That's when things come to the Supreme Court. And then if you do a 4-4 and either just stalemate a 4-4 or, or in, in this last case on the, on the birth control in ACA piece, actually go back and ask the circuits questions to, to resolve it, it's very hinky i think and it's and uh i think it creates a lot of uncertainty and it does create a certain issue with with the inter- international uh business in terms of is the u.s reliable you mentioned citizens united and you've also talked about judicial restraint overturning precedents would you like to see that decision overturned, and is it important to you that? Yeah, you know, I think I think uh, most Americans would like to see. And would that would be like judicial to activism, activism to, to overturn it at this point? Uh, I don't think so because I think it was a a very improper uh, use of judicial activism then, and also you'll remember that Kennedy, in his in his majority opinion, said that this is great. <laughs> because now we'll have this disclosure happening because of the internet. We'll have this disclo- immediate disclosure of who's giving money to what. Mm-hmm. Well, of course, we don't have disclosure. 
So the way he envisioned it was with disclosure. And there's no disclosure. We had a vote uh, several years ago where we, this is when we had 59 Democrats and um, 41 Republicans. And it was skins and shirts on this vote. We, we had a Disclose Act where you could disclose, where you would have to disclose people who gave money to these PACs would have to d- disclose them. And, and uh, every Republican who voted voted against it. I want to take a quick break, and when we come back, we'll go into some more questions about the court. I'm particularly interested to know whether there is any good that can come out of just having eight justices on the court after we come back from this break. All right, so we are back, and I want to pick up right where we left off. The good that can come out of having just eight justices. Uh, I got to hear this. It's Greg. a contrarian <laughs> opinion. <laughs> Greg, what's the good? Thing? What can come out of this? that's good. Well, they're not doing a whole lot of bad things, are they? No, I, I, the I mean, absence I, of bad <laughs> is by definition good. No, I, I, I think the um, you know, the argument is that. Um, they are having to compromise more. By the nature of, of eight justices, the fear of a 4-4 split, they are deciding things narrowly. You know, a, 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 See, that, one that's example, what Garland said about how he gets consensus is decide narrowly. So yeah, was, yeah. Uh, I, I mean, in one example, this is, this is not deciding narrowly, uh, but rather not deciding at all. There was, <laughs> there was a case, one of the 4-4s I, I suspect you're happy about, that is a case involving public sector unions sure. and whether workers have a constitutional right to say we're not going to pay fees to help support the collective bargaining. And I think all, all of us who covered the court, a lot of other people thought the court was going to say five to four. There is a constitutional right there, and it would have been a ruling that would have really changed the yeah. changed the rules for public sector unions. Instead, the, the court uh, divides four to four, and they leave the law in place where uh, workers in in about you know, twenty some odd states uh, uh, can be required to to pay those fees. These are so there was unions. a case, huh? Labor union labor union fees, yes. Um, and this is just public sector workers that we're talking about. But there was a case where um, by only having eight justices, they didn't do something that would have been a really a, a you know a major a, a major shift in this country. It would have been. It would have been a, again another five four. Uh, big decision overturning precedent. <laughs> it would have been another activist decision. Uh, so I think that, uh, yeah, I think there was a, you know, basically these unions do the bargaining even if you don't belong to the union. Mm-hmm. And um, we're, you know, collecting fees from uh, the, the employees that they were bargaining on behalf of. And the, uh, a, you know, court if if Scalia had been there, probably would have ruled that they can't do that, that the union can't collect fees for bargaining on behalf of these people, even though <laughs> they are the beneficiary of the bargaining. I could probably take off a whole long list of decisions that I think you probably disagree with over the past 10 years or so that were decided five to four and uh, I suspect you would have been happier to have those be four to four. The Voting Rights Act is w- one example. I mean, most of the big decisions of the Roberts Court, when we think about the conservative decisions that they have issued, there are, are by and large, or perhaps even entirely, five to four rulings. 
Yeah, and I think that was one of my my problems with it, which is when you do overturn precedent, uh, I think you got to be very careful and do it on five four basis. Something as big as Citizens United, something as some of the decisions on um, the Voting Rights Act we mentioned, but also on, on arbitration, on class actions and arbitration, overriding the states on on, on that. I think we're very again activist, pro-business decisions. And Greg, you were telling me when we were sort of preparing for the show that the broader history of the Supreme Court, would you say that it leans more toward, I guess, pro-business over the grand scheme of things? or Yeah, I, I think if you just look at you know, using as, as a kind of a convenient metric the cases where the Chamber of Commerce has filed a brief, as sort of a proxy for a case, you know, a business case where business is on one side. This is the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. Right, yeah. right. Uh, business has won over the past, you know, in the time I've been covering the court, the past you know, 15 or 20 years. They have certainly won uh, more cases than they have lost. Maybe, you know, close to two-thirds of them, I think, is roughly uh, prob- probably the number. So that is fair. But not all those have been five to four. Mm-hmm. Um, those are can be seven to two decisions. And there's actually one category of decisions that I uh, find fascinating uh, because Justice Scalia is on the side you wouldn't expect him to be on, which is uh, about 10 years ago, limiting punitive damages was a very big constitutional mm-hmm. issue. And the court was willing to put some limits on it. But the justices who said, no, the Constitution doesn't provide any limits were actually the justices we think about as being on either end of the spectrum. So you had Justice Ginsburg who said, nope, Constitution doesn't put any limits, but also Justices Thomas and Scalia. And so there's a case where, at least on that particular issue, the next justice may actually make the court a little more favorable to business if he or she believes that the Constitution does provide some limits on punitive damages. How does all this play out? We know Trump came out with his list of nominees, and on it, it was pretty, I read your story, you said it was sort of pretty by the book in terms of not stepping too far out of the conservative box. Five of them were those also suggested, I guess, by the Heritage Foundation. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> oh, boy. So, I mean, what if we get a President Trump? What what happens, Greg? I'm going to have Greg play a little bit of a devil's advocate <laughs> with you on this one. Okay. Well, you know, if you look at this list, you know, as I said, it is somebody who would be, you would expect from a Republican president. Now, Donald Trump has also said, oh, it's just a guide. And then that night he, he put out a tweet saying, my, my list was very well received, and I may actually put more people on the list. So, um, you know, I, I, I'm not sure exactly. Does he know point. you can only appoint one at a time? <laughs> uh, I, I haven't had a chance to ask. Okay. I think that's a good first question if you get an interview. So I think, I think there are a lot of conservatives who you know, care very much about the Supreme Court who are not fully confident. But – that said, I think it is certainly fair to assume that um, or, or, or likely that he is not going to shift the court significantly from where it was with Justice Scalia on it, that whoever he nominates will on uh, certainly be to the right of uh, who we would expect Hillary Clinton or, or Bernie Sanders to, to, to nominate and, and uh, highly likely to be to the right of, of Merrick Garland as well. Yeah, I mean, you're you're assuming, of course, that my Republican colleagues don't. Well, if, if, if say Hillary wins, that they won't go with Garland. But then, then if Hillary wins, Trump wouldn't win. So, <laughs> never mind. 
I should say that Judge Garland. You, you know, but I, w- I will say this about that list. He, he was just trying to unite the party by putting out a list that, you know, conservatives will go like, oh, OK, I, those are I like those guys. You know, I don't think that, you know, that was a pretty, uh, you know, that's telling, put a list together for me that will accomplish that. Red State put out an argument a few weeks ago that's sort of along the lines of, I think, what you seem to be hearing from some Republicans, which is Republicans should just go ahead and fill the vacancy because it's more likely that Hillary will win than Trump. And she may nominate someone who's much more should, liberal than Garland. Should go ahead and confer- confirm Eric Excuse Garland. me. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Could go ahead and, should go ahead and confirm. Uh, any thoughts on this from, from either of you? Do you think that's something that they're mulling right now, Senator? Well, you know, I think what they're mulling literally is election, Hillary wins, uh, hearings for Garland. Okay. So you, I mean, think, that's, literally you think, think that's how it plays out? <laughs> I mean, as bad as that looks in a way, the election's over. I think that... Uh, there is a real uh, respect for Garland and uh, almost an affection for him. You know, one of the first Republican senators who agreed to meet with Garland was Jim Inhofe. And that's because of that Garland was a prosecutor in the Oklahoma City case and that he has stayed in touch with the families of, of those who were killed at Oklahoma City. And he's kind of revered there. And so um, this guy is kind of an extraordinary guy. So I think that that play, you know, may very well make sense that they could go, okay, we lost the election. Hillary will probably appoint someone more to the left. Also, we hopefully uh, got our butts handed to us the other day, and there's going to be a lot more. It may be the Democrats take over the Senate. Yeah, come, come that's January. What I, yeah, that's what I was saying. Yeah. Hopefully, you know. <laughs> that's why I said hopefully, and, and I hope that happens. Uh, so they may actually bring up Garland, and then we'd have to do a gut check and see. <laughs> uh, you know, and I, I actually think uh, Obama would be okay with that. I don't know where Hillary would be on that. Senator, how do, how do we get out of this this? This box that we're in with these nominations, they have, and we can sort of go back and, and point fingers as to who, who's at fault, but we are in a, in a world where Supreme Court nominations have become so partisan, and uh, increasingly it seems like they are looked upon as a zero-sum game. And the way you describe your your view of how the Republicans are acting, it sounds like you think they are perceiving this in that same way where where if if they get to the point where they say, oh... You know, Merrick Garland is, you know, the best we can do at this point. Then we'll go ahead and confirm him. But how do members well, I of, think this of, of is both too parties? Bad uh, because I think what this does is undermine their respect for the court. Uh, because sure, it's, it, it, it's approval ratings to the extent they matter have have you know plummeted plummeted along with with uh, you know those of Congress and other institutions. Yeah, well, I think there's been sort of a, an assault on legitimacy of government for a long, long time. We saw that, you know, with Gingrich, and uh, we've seen that with the Tea Party, and I think that the Republican Party has sort of created Trump, in a way, um, uh, made a bargain, and uh, I think that's this is what you get. And I think it has been partly an assault at... Uh, the legitimacy of the government, and, 
you know, including threatening to uh, default on our debt. Uh, Trump's <laughs> Trump saying we that can you make can make a deal. Is I think what well, he, he says a couple things. Life. One, you can bargain with our creditors, and that us uh, presumably is people who who hold bonds. So I don't know how they would would uh, bargain with me. I don't know where I'd be mm-hmm. in on that. And uh, which is a, a, a that's not good for business. <laughs> I can mm-hmm. tell you that. Yeah, I don't. I'm on Bloomberg. I think Bloomberg would agree. That's not good. And then there was the other thing. He said we can't default because we print money which is kind of crazy. So this is who, who the uh, Republican nominee is. And I think that this has been a process of uh, playing footsie with people who don't believe that the government has a legitimate role to play. Well, I, we're going to wrap up, but I would probably lose my journalist card if I didn't ask this question. Are you being considered by Hillary, Hillary Clinton's campaign for vice president? Is that something you'd be interested in? I uh, really enjoy my job uh, with uh, representing the people of Minnesota, and I am going to work very hard for Hillary going around the country for her. I, um, I, I don't. I think that's just conjecture, and uh, I, I don't think that's going to happen. I guess we'll see. Right? Anything is possible? I'll make you a bet. <laughs> <laughs> How much? <laughs> uh, well, you mean what are the odds? Because I'll, I'll bet you a thousand bucks. I mean, I mean, you're on one side of this bargain, though, so it doesn't seem very fair for me. <laughs> uh, yeah, it is very unfair, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you, Tori. Thank you. Thank you, Greg. That's it for today's show. Benchmark will be back next week, and until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal and Bloomberg.com, as well as on iTunes, Pocket Cast, and Stitcher. While you're there, take a minute to rate and review the show so more listeners can find us, and recommend us to a friend if you like us. Also, let us know what you thought of the show via Twitter. I'm at Tori Stillwell, and our guests are also on Twitter at at Franken and at Greg Store. Also, if you'd like to email our producer, he is at amccabe, M-C-C-A-B-E, at Bloomberg.net. And if you enjoyed our show, you may also want to check out Odd Lots, a podcast about the twists and turns of financial markets hosted by my colleagues Joe Weisenthal and Tracy Alloway. See you next week.